Amen. Thank you, praise team, very much. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. <laughs> it's good to see you all. And I, I really appreciate you guys coming out on Sunday morning. I know, you know, I get into this, into this holiday season, this Advent time, and there's lots of busyness. But thank you for making it a point to come to worship God together. Um, it's something terrific about when we all just get together and lift up his name. And that's what we're going to be looking at today is a little bit about, about worship. Um, before I, I get into that, I would just like to say thank you to you all. And this is a, a thank you from the Elliots. Um, and this just seems like a good time to say it. You know, back when we went through that whole transition time, very interesting time uh, for many of us. But you just showered us with an amazing gift at the end of that time. And Carrie and I had the opportunity to get away. And we went to Florida, of all places. Now, granted, it was right on the heels of that hurricane. Um, and so one night we're walking through. It was the, the first night that we were there. We were walking through the town. We went to this restaurant. We were having a great time just sitting out there talking. And we went back in and began to walk through the restaurant, this is. And I was walking down some steps, and I stepped right into about a foot of water. And here the surge from the, the surf had come up, and it was basically flooding the place where we were at. Um, that was the only kind of reminder we had of that hurricane the whole time. But uh, we had a, just a great time. And I thank you all for the way you gave so generously to us. It was, a, it was terrific. Um, well, I should be clapping for you guys. Thank you. <laughs> You know, this morning, yeah, we're going to continue this series called um, The Advent Conspiracy. And, you know, like, uh, like Chris said, that's why we got this upside-down Christmas tree. I, I did get a, a few comments uh, from people saying, hey, what are you turning the Christmas tree upside down for? Now, listen, it's bad enough that people just say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, and now you go flipping the tree upside down on us. Um, well, our goal in doing that is, is to, yeah turn our Christmas celebration upside down and get away from the commercialism and back to the real meaning of Christmas. Um, and, and we want to do that through a series of four topics. And the topic that I'm going to be looking at today is uh, entitled Worship Fully. Worship Fully. Um, you know, as we get into this, into this season, it seems like we, we just got bombarded with all these election commercials on TV. And wasn't it nice when that stopped? Now we're into the Christmas commercials. Seems like we just kind of jumped right over Thanksgiving, nothing there. But we're into these Christmas commercials. And uh, there's one that seems to be playing all the time. It's not a, you know, the, the, the guy's trying to do something good. We hear it all year, though. You know that one about, nobody beats the king. Nobody. And I'm, I'm just watching this poor kid over the years as he grows up in front of us. And I'm thinking, this kid is going to be damaged for life. Or, or we are. I'm not sure. Um, but, I, but I look at that statement, nobody beats the king. Nobody. And I just have to say to you, you know, if the king is trying to demand worship, well, you bet you can beat him. But when the king deserves worship, you know, that's when, yeah, you can't beat that. 
And we're going to look at a king today who definitely deserves worship. We're also going to look at a king who demanded worship um, as we go back to that first Christmas. Um, But let me just read this. This is from, again, that that passage that I read at the very beginning of our service. Luke chapter 1, my soul glorifies the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. This is one of those great hymns of worship that comes out in this story of the Advent. We're going to spend some time taking a little bit of a look at that. Uh, We're going to be kind of jumping around in Scripture. But, yeah, if you want to open your Bibles, open them to Luke chapter 1 and just be camped in there while I jump around. Let's, uh, Let's bow our heads and just ask God to open our hearts to Him. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much that you are God Almighty. You are the only God. You are the only God that we should come and and worship and lift high. And today we want you to be lifted high. We want you to be pleased. We want you to be glorified. Lord, teach us what it is to worship you fully. And we thank you. Thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen. You know, I was kind of expecting a little... uh, text message to come on my phone right about 10.45 because last night Carrie and I were, were out, we were at Walmart and I ran into some friends and as we were talking it kind of came out, well it didn't kind of, I said it, I said you know I, I got to preach tomorrow so I better get home and just kind of get my heart and mind going and he said oh good, what are you going to preach on and I said well the topic is worship fully and he just kind of steps at worship fully, he said okay so what? I said, what do you mean, so what? He said, well, worship fully. Fully is one of those emotional words that doesn't really mean much. What do you mean when you say worship fully? Are you going to define it? So I ought to just define it for us all. Um, and this is no big thing that I've done a lot of study on, but, you know, worship is basically giving God what He's worth. That's what worship is. It's giving someone what they're worth. And, and the thing is, when we try to give God what He's worth, you can never stop because He's always worth far more than we can ever imagine. And the more we try, the more we realize, wow, He's such bigger. He's so bigger. He's so greater than anything I can imagine here. So worship fully is just worship that keeps on going and going and going and going. And hopefully we're going to discover ways that each one of us, you and I, can just step into this worship more and more. And, and kids, we welcome you to our service this morning. I'm glad you're here. It's my goal, hopefully, not to be too boring, um, but that we'll be able to join in together. And you will be able to discover things about worship as we all look at them together. Um, this verse that I've got up in front of you, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, is, is familiar with our Christmas story. Let's all just read it together as it's up here on the, on the wall. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. Now, that seems like just one of those simple verses. We read it. In fact, when you read it, the very next phrase talks about the wise men. And usually we read this and we just skim right through it and we jump into the wise men and we kind of envision what it's like for the wise men when they came. But right in this little verse, I believe very much that people who lived during the time when Matthew wrote this, they would have read those few words and they would have said, you're kidding. You mean Jesus somehow was born while Herod was king and he survived that? And and it was in Bethlehem. 
And we want to look at those, those two aspects. This place called Bethlehem, but this, this king called Herod. Um, last week, I loved what Ryan did last week. I learned so much about Rome and everything at the time of, of Christ's birth. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you, hop on the website and download the, um, you know, the podcast and listen to his message from last week. And he was talking about Caesar Augustus. Uh, Caesar Augustus said in relationship to this King Herod, well, let me show you this picture first. If I can get this going. Uh, maybe we'll have to, John, can you push this forward? Because this is a key picture. Maybe not. Um, okay, that's going one way. Oh, here we come. Oops. Let me go back. Here we go. Oh, there. I want, you, I want to introduce you to Mater. This is Mater Centola. Um, Kevin and, and Lewis got a pig, of all things. And, uh, you know, the whole family. And yesterday they had an open house uh, and, and invited people to come over and meet Mater. Uh, the reason I show you Mater, yes, he's cute. He, I mean, when his little tail wags, it's, it's great. Um, but remember, I was, I was talking about King Herod. And um, Caesar Augustus actually wrote these words down, I would rather be Herod's pig than his sons. It just gives you an idea of what we're talking about when we're talking about King Herod. Um, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. When people would, in, in Matthew's day or, or a few years after that, when they would read those words, they'd think, in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was not really that well-known in those days. What was well-known was something in this picture. See that? looks like a little volcano with its top blown off. That happens to be one of the biggest, most um, detailed palaces at the turn of time there. In, in the, the time, it was built around 20 B.C. And for around 40 years... It was so ornate. It was known throughout the world at that time as, as being a wonder, as, as being one of the greatest palaces around the world. It was called the Herodium. And you saw, it was in, well, I'll show you the picture later on, but the Herodium right here, these are the excavations going on today. They started in the late 60s. And as they began to excavate, they found ornate rooms uh, palace rooms. They, uh, they found a, a pool that was two times bigger than an Olympic-sized pool. Let me show you an artist's rendition of what Herodium looked like. Um, basically, it, it had this level down on the, on the uh, desert floor, and on that desert floor, it had ornate gardens. It had this large pool area. It had a theater. It had a racetrack. Uh, this was basically a pleasure palace for Herod the king. And he would invite guests and diplomats to come and stay. They had residences down there on the desert floor where they could stay and where servants could tend to all their needs. And then you see the hill next to it. It almost looks like a castle on the top. What Herod did here... He had had a great battle. And so to commemorate his battle, to memorialize his victory, he said, I want to build a great palace here. And so he, he took this 
hill that was just a little mound. And he began to build a whole series of tunnels and aqueducts and rooms. And he went higher and higher. And as he went higher, he said, we've got to fill this in. And so he found a mountain a little ways away. And thousands of slaves later, they had taken that mountain and shaved it down and took all of the debris from that mountain and used it to mound up around this palace that he was building until it went higher and higher and higher. And it turned out to be the highest mountain in the Judean wilderness area. It became a summer palace for Herod. At the top of it, he built a 10-story structure. Uh, looked like round castle walls and turrets. He used to be able to get up at the top and his servants could take mirrors and they could communicate back and forth to the city of Jerusalem that was seven miles away. And as he would be up in those palace walls, he could look out over the whole Judean wilderness. He had built such a fabulous structure. When people would hear the words Bethlehem in that day, they would think of Herodium. Bethlehem was a sleepy little agricultural village of a few shacks. But Herodium was a palace fit for a king. But when God came, he didn't choose to come to Herodium. Um, it says in Micah, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, you're too little to be even considered among the clans. Let me just read you what the, uh, the New Living says. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you're only a small, small village among all the peoples of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel is going to come from you. I like how the message Peterson says, you're the runt of the litter. When, when people would hear of this area, what they would immediately think of is Herodium. And when you look down there, that's about the distance from Bethlehem to Herodium. Actually, Bethlehem was in the shadow of Herodium. And Mary and Joseph came right along a road that went right by Herodium. They didn't turn in there. They came into Bethlehem. God chose an out-of-the-way place to enter this world. Not the kind of a dynamic place that we might often think of. I told you that they started excavating um, Herodium about 1960, 1970. And they've been working on it for the last 40 years or so. They've been amazed at what they've been finding but before that, Herodium was kind of a lost place in the history books. Whereas Bethlehem, this little runt of the litter clan, grew and grew in importance. Um, this is a, a picture of a place called the Church of the Nativity, which is in Bethlehem today. A number of years ago, when I was in college, uh, that is a number of years ago, <coughs> Um, I was able to take a trip and go over to the Holy Land. And we went to visit the, the Church of the Nativity. Um, it's on Manger Square in, in Bethlehem. And 
in those days, um, which was back in the 70s, you know, it wasn't so hard to get to the Church of the Nativity. And we walked inside. I was so expectant about seeing this place where Jesus was born. Walked in there, and you know what? We walked down into the bottom, and there was this white marble, and there was a gold incense marker, and there was a flame, and there was all kinds of candles and incense, and I was kind of turned off. But only have I come to appreciate it more and more as years go by. Um, Because this structure, this Church of the Nativity, is the oldest existing structure in which continuous Christian worship has taken place over the centuries. The last time this place was renovated was uh, 1100. Can you imagine that? What would we do? We'd be arguing about the carpet. Um, Basically, when you go back to the history here, um, after Christ was gone and, and as his followers uh, rose to prominence, they began to mark some of those places in Christ's life. And some of those folks within the first generation went back to Bethlehem and, and they found a cave where they believed Jesus had been born. And then on that cave, they, they built a little structure to honor that. Well, in 130 A.D., about 100 years after Christ, the Romans came along. They were trying to wipe out any memory of Christ. And so they came, and someone told them, yeah, there's where Christ was supposedly born. So they ripped it down, and they built a shrine to Adonis, big stone marble shrine, trying to shake their hands and their fist in the face of God. What little they realized is they just really permanently marked that place as what was believed to be where Christ was born. And about 200 years later, when Christianity became legal in the empire, Christians came back to Bethlehem and they tore down this place to Adonis and they built the Church of the Nativity. That was about in 300 A.D. Um, The church decayed over the next couple hundred years. And in 500 A.D., they built this building that still exists in 500 A.D. And you may be saying, well, Dan, I thought when the Crusaders came... I thought a lot of those places were destroyed. Well, you know, they were. I, I was fascinated by this. I was listening to a, a preacher just just kind of dig into some of this about the church and the nativity. And he said, when, when the Turkish Muslims came in during the Crusades, they destroyed church after church after church. And when they came to Bethlehem, they were told this was a church. So they, so they went in there ready to burn it to the ground, to tear it down. But when they walked in, they looked at the walls and they saw frescoes. And it was frescoes of the, of the wise men dressed in their Persian garb. And as they're looking at them, they say, wow, those guys on the wall look like us. They're wearing the same costumes we wear. And so they said to themselves, this must be a place where they honor our type of people. So they left it there. And to this day, this place is there. And it just kind of strikes me. The birthplace of, Bethlehem, of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem was of such humble means. And yet... Look how it's lasted. Whereas Herodium, yeah, just kind of rediscovered the last 30, 40 years. But Jesus' birthplace. Now, look at the walls of this place. And some of you may have been looking at the picture when I first put it on. Um, I'm wondering, as you look at it, the main entrance to this church is right there. Can, Can you see the main entrance? Kids, as you look at that, what would you guess would be the main entrance? Okay, get it in your mind. Here we go. Oops. <laughs> I'm having such fun with this thing. Um, see that? 
That's the main entrance. I remember when we visited years ago, I had to duck down. This thing is like four feet tall, if that. And that's the main entrance to this church. Again, Jesus entered the world in such a humble way, not demanding our allegiance, but seeking to enter this world to win our allegiance. And he calls us to worship him in freedom, not because we have to. Now, as I said in that, as we saw in that verse there in Matthew 2, it was during the time of, of King Herod. <laughs> I seem to be jumping ahead all the time. This is, this is a, a bust of King Herod um, when he was a younger man. And I just want to share some insights into this guy. What, a, what an interesting figure in history this man was. He was a very powerful leader. He was a very creative leader. He was a very paranoid leader. Um, and when I say demanding worship, he longed to be, to be adored. He longed to, to have loyalty given to him. And if it wasn't, he was ruthless. There are many incidences where um, after forcing himself upon the, the Jewish nation as their king, Rome declared him to be the king of the Jews. And time and time again, he would be ruthless with them, um, executing many of them in the process because they refused to give him allegiance. Um, but where it's probably the most striking is when we start talking about his own family. And that's where we heard that little statement by Caesar Augustus. Boy, I'd rather be Herod's pig than be one of his sons. Um, he had ten wives. So in having ten wives, he had a number of children. Uh, he was pretty ruthless with his in-laws. And one in-law in particular was the high priest in Jerusalem. He had him executed when he heard rumors that this high priest was uh, undermining Herod's authority. Well, he not only did that, but when he found out that two of his favorite sons actually loved their uncle, the high priest, he had them strangled just like that because he was fearful of what they might carry on. Not only that, but their mother was his favorite wife and he had her executed on the spot. Um, time and time and time again, he would do that throughout his life until finally at his deathbed, um, he, he was very distraught because he realized he wasn't really loved here in Israel. He was very sick, so he had, his, he had himself taken down to the Dead Sea where he immersed himself in those salt waters and he tried everything he could to try to get better Nothing worked. He still was in great pain. He was still dying. He went back to his palace, despondent, dejected. And you know what? He tried to commit suicide. When he tried to commit suicide, there was a, a wail and a cry of alarm that went up in the palace. One of his sons, who was actually chosen to be his successor, when he heard that, and when he heard, oh no, the king has committed suicide, he made some steps to have an orderly progression of, of power. Herod didn't quite complete the suicide. And so he survived. And when he heard that his son had done this, he had him executed. Um, it took him a while to die. And as he was on his deathbed lying there, he realized he was not going to have... Uh, he was afraid that the people were going to celebrate his death. And so he did something that he's known for. Um, 
Josephus tells us, having assembled the distinguished men from every village from one end of Judea to the other, he ordered them to be locked in the hippodrome at Jericho. And then he gave orders after they were locked in there. He said, the moment I die, you are to execute every one of these leaders because I don't want anybody celebrating my death. Um, Fortunately, stronger heads prevailed. Herod died. None of these men were executed. And I think the Jews did celebrate. But can you imagine that verse then as people were reading that years later, Jesus Christ was born during the reign of King Herod. And they'd say, wow, he survived a ruthless leader like that. When God came to earth, he came in humble circumstances, but he also came through humble means, not at all through a, through a king who was demanding to be worshipped, but he came through a lowly servant. He came to Mary. Um, in the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary, to a young teenage girl named Mary. I love how the movie, The Nativity, pictures her. Just a, just a young gal playing with her friends. Out there working, yes, but, but having friends and, and just trying to be a, a teenager, if you would say. And during that time, God specifically came to her with a message. And the angel said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at his words. Now, I just want to point something out. You know, if an angel came to me, or probably I would say if an angel came to you, I'd be be a little bit, uh, yeah, concerned. I'd be nervous. I'd be scared if an angel came into my presence. I would probably drop to my knees. But it doesn't say that Mary was disturbed by the angel. It says she was disturbed by the angel's words, by the message that the angel brought. Um, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. And as she heard that, she's going, oh my goodness. Why is he saying that to me? I had to kind of do a little bit of digging in to find out just what does that word mean? And basically, favored woman, favored is that same word that we use for grace or being covered by grace. Um, in Ephesians, where, where Ryan is preaching through right now, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, it says, So we praise God for the glorious grace that He's poured out on us who belong to His dear Son. So as Mary is listening to this angel Gabriel, she might hear, um, Woman, you are covered in grace. Woman, you are so privileged because His grace is poured out on you. There was another time when this very same angel, Gabriel, appeared to someone in the Bible. And that was to his servant, Daniel. And the very same word in the Hebrew then was used here in Daniel. And let me just read for you these words that Daniel received. Um, Gabriel says to Daniel, the moment you began praying, a command was given. And now I, Gabriel, am here to tell you what it was. For you are very 
precious to God. And that's that word. Um, so when Mary is hearing this, um, she is hearing this, greetings, woman, you are very precious to God. Woman, you are, are greatly loved by God. Greetings, you who are covered by grace. What a woman you are. And she's kind of stunned. Well, the angel goes on to explain what she's being asked to do and to carry the child of God. And she asks questions, well, I'm a virgin. How is that ever going to happen? And after they go through it, she says to him, she says to him, Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left. Mary hears these startling words. I love you. You're precious to me. My grace is poured out upon you. And she believes that. And she says, okay, do it and may all your words come true about me. When we come to worship God, I think we can learn from Mary's example. Worshiping fully grows by hearing God's message and then hanging on to it. Worshiping fully grows by hearing God's message and hanging on to it. And the message that that Mary heard was, wow, you are, you are greatly loved. You are so precious to God. Yes, she believed it. She hung on to it. And we look at that and we say, well, yeah, that's Mary. Mary was exceptional. Mary was a virgin. Uh, you know, I'd like to say there's a lot of virgins. Uh, so that's not so exceptional. But in our... In our faith system, in Christianity today, yes, Mary has in some ways been elevated as if Mary was so pure, as if Mary could do no wrong. But let me tell you, the same message that Mary received, you are covered with grace, you are fully loved, you are so special to God, is the same message that you and I receive. Um. Let me go back here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. So we praise God for the glorious grace. We praise God for the fact that He has poured His grace on us. We praise God for the fact that we are specially loved by Him. We praise God for the fact that, that we are precious to Him, to those of us who belong to His dear Son. The very same words that were given to Mary are given to you and given to me. And we're called, not demanded to worship Him. Ah, oh, but we start to realize, wow, He deserves my worship because His love for me is amazing. Do you believe that? I pause there because I wrestle with this. You know, when I read those verses, He delights over me. He sings over me with love. I accept them in my head. But I need to let him get down into my heart because I know it's true. But I keep saying to myself, yeah, it's true, but I disappoint him a lot. Wonderful that Mary, this young girl, can hear those words and receive them. 
And I would challenge each and every one of us today, if we want to worship, if we want to give God the worth He is due and more and more and more, we've got to grapple with His message to us that He comes to us and says, I love you. I really delight in you. I've created you for some special things. I have a purpose for you. I take pleasure in you. Can you hang on to that? Because our worship is only going to grow by receiving that message. Well, Mary received that. Um, Immediately when she received that, some of the situations she found herself in demanded that maybe she should leave the town of Nazareth and go visit her Aunt Elizabeth, who uh, the rumors had come after many, many years had just become pregnant. So Mary went to Elizabeth miles and miles away. And when she approached Elizabeth, Elizabeth just praised God and the baby within her womb just jumped for joy. And together, they, they celebrated together. And I can just see Mary. It might be easy to, yes, a, an angel, Gabriel coming. What a, what a visual for her. But now to be able to go to her aunt and her aunt confirm miles away the message that the angel had given her. And they're rejoicing. And Mary comes out with these words. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for He's looked on the humble estate of me, His servant. So I tried to do a little word study on this word magnify. And you know, sometimes we we seminary grads can get a little bit too big for our britches. Because of If I were to ask you, what does magnify mean? You could probably give a really good definition. Kids, um, this is a great magnifying glass. It looks like Sherlock Holmes. Um, But I I asked Carrie, hon, do you have a magnifying glass at your second grade class? And she said, well, let me go look. And she comes up with this thing. And you know, if I look through this, what does a magnifying glass do? It makes things bigger. You know, right now it's making you blurry. But, but it really makes things bigger and bigger so that I can observe them more and more. Coming alive in worship, Mary says, Wow, my soul magnifies you, God. My soul is making you bigger inside of me. My soul is helping me see you big right now. Um, and because I'm seeing you bigger and bigger, it's, it's resulting in me rejoicing in you. Because I know that you're looking at me. You see my humble estate. You see my situation that I'm in. Um, worshiping fully makes God bigger in my daily outlook. Yes, worshiping fully grows as I, as I learn to receive His message to me of, of love and acceptance and grace. And as I receive that, it helps me to see Him as bigger and bigger and greater. And my worship never stops because there's always more and more to learn about Him. And it fills my vision. Um, And my daily outlook, I begin to see Him that way. Um, I love this, the passage there, because it says, You have seen me. You, You see me right now. God never misses where you're going. God never misses one detail of your life. 
He knows everything that you're facing. Um, And as you can magnify Him through your worship and allow Him to become bigger and bigger in your eyesight, more and more times we're going to be able to rest on the fact that He sees me right now with every detail that's going on. There's nothing I can hide from Him. And yet He's still there with me, whispering to me, I love you. You are precious. Reminds me of of Hagar in the Old Testament. When she's driven away from, from Sarah, and she's out there with her son Ishmael, and she feels lost and abandoned and alone, and God comes and speaks to her. And she for the first time in her life, realizes that God sees everything that's taking place in her life and it brings her to point to say, God, I lift your name up. You are El Roy. You are the God who sees everything about me. What an aspect of worship if we're going to fully come before Him. Well, so Mary stayed with Elizabeth about two to three months. And then she had to go back to her hometown. We look at Mary and we think, wow, Mary, God has come to you. You are worshiping and magnifying Him. But then Mary goes back and has to face the circumstances of her call. Has to go back to a town of Nazareth where now, yeah, she's starting to show and people are starting to talk and people are starting to speculate what really happened and talk about her infidelity. She has to go back to Joseph. Joseph, who loves her so much, but now when Joseph sees the evidence of what's taking place, he wrestles, what should I do with this unfaithful woman? She has to go back to her parents. She has to step back into life. I think sometimes we think worship, good, stirring life-changing worship will change all the circumstances we face. It won't. Worship does not change our lives, but worship certainly changes how we view the circumstances of our lives. I I think of uh, somebody who was here at the church, and I've I've shared this before with you, but the Miedemans, and years ago, had a tragic, tragic incident in which they lost their their nine-year-old son. Um, to a, they were up hiking in the Rocky Mountain National Park and, and a mountain lion came. Um, it was hard. And I, David and Kathy struggled and wrestled. Um, years later, I was talking to David and I saw, and he gave me a paper that he had written as part of his therapy, part of his walking through this sorrow. And it was, it was the most amazing statement he wrote down. He wrote on that paper, you know, I was always told that God has a wonderful plan for your lives. But after walking through this, I've come to realize God has a plan for my life that will make me wonder. And as we immerse ourselves in worshiping God more and more, it may not answer our questions, but it will cause us to wonder. It will cause us to come before Him in awe. It will cause us to bring our life circumstances to Him because we realize He is far greater than anything I can imagine. And yes, my life seems to have one problem after another problem after another problem, but God sees me. He sees that. And He's calling me to worship Him and come in walk and trust of Him. 
Mary, it says, treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. It says that throughout her experience of, of being the mother of, of the Son of God. Um, I kind of like how the New Living says that um, when Mary, this, this very same verse in the New Living, it says, um, oh, here it is. But Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. One of the keys to worship is to realize that worship, yeah, it doesn't guarantee us that everything's going to work out in our lives. But worship is going to bring us in touch with the Almighty God who we have begun to receive His message that He does love us and He takes pleasure in us. And as we've done that, He becomes greater and greater. And we begin to realize His love is amazing and He is so strong. He is so strong. And step by step, as our worship begins to grow, we begin to realize that regardless of what I'm facing in this life, I can put my hand into His hand and we can walk into it. I read an interesting thing. I used to, I used to kind of view my Christianity like here I am. Here I am. Here's the pile of crud in my life. And here's God. And God is saying, come to me. Come to me. We've been reading something in staff that is illustrated differently. Here I am. Here's this pile of crud in my life in front of me. And here's God right beside me putting his arm around me and saying, wow, you've got quite a pile. But you know what? I'm here with you. Let's go forward. Oh, wow. And, and that's when worshiping fully begins to take more and more effect in my life. When I realize God is not saying, come on, try harder. But God is saying, come on, let's go together. God calls us to worship Him. To worship Him more and more. And I've put this verse up here, Ephesians 3, just so it keeps us anchored in this book that we're looking at. Because I know that this kind of worship we're talking about is not easy. We wrestle. So I challenge you to to pray this for yourself, for others, just like Paul is praying it for us. I pray that from God's glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Wow. Then... Jesus Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. His love will be magnified to you. His name will be lifted high. And I pray that you may have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love really is. And I pray you may experience the love of Christ. Experience it, not just know it. Though it's too great to understand fully, then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. We pray this in our lives. Um, We have the opportunity now to come and remember what Christ has done in order to make all of this possible, in order to to open our lives up to truly worship Him. I'm going to ask the the praise team to come up here because we're going to sing a little bit just to prepare our hearts And I would ask you, as as we sing these things, remind yourself that God loves you so strongly. 
and focus in upon that. Sure. Sure, we've got problems in our lives. Every one of you sitting here has something you're struggling with. I certainly don't belittle that. We could all have such a list of things we're wrestling with. And God knows every detail of our lists. They have not gone unnoticed. That's why we need to bring ourselves before Him and allow Him to touch our souls and bring us to this table. Let's kind of focus our thoughts upon God for a little bit and then I'll invite us to the table.